From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. These legacy pre-iPhone companies need to be disrupted because the way we look at the world through our phones and consumerization and what we expect is so different. And if you were to build technology today, it's so different. And so I think pick some a market that hasn't been disrupted since the iPhone. Hi, folks. Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by Megan Eisenberg, CMO at Trip Actions. When Megan was a kid, she and her family would pile into a camper and head across the country to visit relatives in Iowa. After college, she landed a gig as an au pair in Belgium and spent a year traveling around Europe. Those experiences inspired a love for travel that Megan continues to embrace. So it's not surprising that she leads marketing at one of the hottest travel companies in the world. But Megan didn't stumble into the position. Her career embodies grit, foresight, and strategic thinking. On today's show, Megan will share her advice on how to pick great companies, a never-fail recipe for success in building strong sales and marketing partnerships, and what it takes to scale a marketing organization fast. She'll also talk about the innovative ways that Trip Actions has responded to the biggest crisis ever to hit the travel industry. Let's get into the discussion. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. We have a lot of great material to work through today. I wanted, though, to start off with an observation that I had after our first conversation I know you've got three daughters. Every parent is a proud parent. You have a little bit of a different take, though, on why you're proud of your children. You actually said, my kids pick up poop. I think we need to get into this particular quotation and have you explain that. Sure. Well, just like I was the youngest of three girls and I had my fair share of yard work and picking up poop, my three daughters um, are the same. You know, I expect them to, you know, and my youngest is six now, um, but I expect them to help out. We have three dogs. They each have a dog. They have to feed the dogs, pick up the poop. And it was a pretty big discussion when we talked about getting dogs and responsibility, because I think often you find the parents end up taking care of the pets. You know, I thought it was important that they own that. And then also you got to get your hands dirty, right? When you're growing up, that's the, you know, you got to learn how to do it because when they're out in the real world, nobody's going to pick up poop for them. So true. I've got daughters now, two of which are in college. When they were little, we would all go out and pull weeds together. Literally, we got our hands dirty. I love it. They absolutely hated it. They (laughs) agonized over it. I can't tell you though, how many positive comments I've gotten from them. Thanks dad for making me pull weeds because it kind of shaped their perspective on work and it's not something you have to fear. Yep, I agree. I agree. Well, you clearly have a lot of grit. That goes back to your childhood. I wanted to talk a little bit about the time you spent in Iowa. I believe that's where your parents were from. Yes, uh, my parents are both from Iowa. Um, You know, my dad was in manufacturing. We moved a fair bit. I was actually born in Texas, but every summer we went back. It was like camp. They they flew us back or they drove us back in a camper to Iowa and we would stay six to eight weeks and we would go move around from grandparents to cousins, aunts and uncles. And it's so different there than certainly it was when we eventually moved to California and growing up in California. What did your, your grandparents do for a living? 
Yeah. So on my dad's side, they were morticians. Actually, they had many jobs. At the core, they would describe themselves as morticians, but they, they also had the store that sold large appliances and carpet for the, you know, really the town. They had beef cattle. So they had a farm. They had a, another farm in Birmingham, which was for corn, of course, big state of corn. And so they were busy. They rose early. They took a nap halfway through the day, switched off. One would tend the store, one would be out at the farm. And then one was, you know, every once in a while checking on us as we ran around town. (laughs) So a mortician, was that in any way a strange experience to kind of stumble into that life? (laughs) Yes, definitely. Because in Iowa, your home is where you practice the funeral home. And so as young kids, we couldn't be in, if there was a service going on, we couldn't be in the house. So we spent a lot of time outside, but there was an embalming room and there was, you know, a piano and an organ and, you know, a lot of flowers all the time being sent to the funeral home. Uh, and, and also they were the local ambulance, which sounds like a conflict of interest, but, you know, in a small town, you do many jobs. And so, yeah, being exposed to that and just, you know, how they prepare someone. And the, my, I remember my aunt talking about the makeup and how hard it was to do someone's hair and makeup when they're lying back. Uh, and just, you know, and, and that she did not want her sons to go into, uh, to the family business. It's a topic that we don't talk a lot about, but at the same time, what an incredible experience for a child to be exposed to that stage of an individual's life and in such an intimate way. I think it probably does demystify or maybe take some of the fear out of death and and what that entails. Yeah, I mean, I definitely was curious. I have one story. I There was a service about to happen and I had gone into the, the room where it was set up in the chairs and, and maybe in an hour the service was going to happen. And I kind of snuck up because I was so curious and I, I kind of reached over into the coffin and just wanted to touch the hand because I, you know, I just like the, that curiousness. And my, I didn't know my grandfather had entered the room behind me and he came up behind me and just said, is she breathing? And it scared me. I can't, I can't even say. And it was just a very memorable <laughs> moment. Um, I think that if you're in that world, you have a different sense of, of life and spirit and sense of humor. Uh, yeah. and, um, and, and a very honest, uh, he was a very honest person about what was going on. So we did get exposed to business, uh, you know, a lot of different things that maybe most kids aren't exposed to, but I mean, I really look back on that time fondly. Um, and, you know, wish my kids could have more of an experience where you're just sort of out in a small town where everyone knows who you are. You're running around, there's a library, and that's about it. And a town square with green grass, but not much else. And, uh, you know, you go, you just, you just got into different things. You also developed a very close relationship with your father growing up. He had a real influence on you in terms of what he taught you and, and who you became. Tell us about the the Ford F two fifty, which has recently come into your life. Yes, yeah, so um, you know this year, as as you're you know you're socially isolating and you're you're kind of in your pods with your family. Uh, I think a, a lot of us are also getting nostalgic. And um, he had a field near his house where some old trucks were sitting out there. I don't know, twenty or thirty of them. And I I just thought let's wouldn't it be fun to to rebuild one of these, go buy one? And so he reached out to the neighbor and and we we bought a old F-250 1970 manual steering brakes, has multiple gas tanks on it, AM radio, 
you know, obviously stick. And it just, you know, one, it reminded me my first car was a 1969 bug that my dad had traded for a stove. And so it kind of reminded me of that. And then just being in Iowa, we, you know, my grandfather had a bunch of old trucks. And when, you know, when I was old enough to drive, it was stick. And so it was just fun to try to pull it out. Uh, my dad obviously did a lot of work in, you know, fixing the carburetor and and finding parts for it and getting it, you know, enough that we could drive it to a mechanic to start figuring out what else we could do with it. And uh, we we just took a, dr- uh, a drive at it about a week ago. You know, we had the windows rolled down, masks on, um, but it was fun. You know, I was I I definitely grinded that the clutch a bit and the the gears, um, but just so fun. You know, these old cars are amazing. And you were working on that with your daughter as well, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. I brought my oldest out every weekend uh, and she, you know, she was curious and did a lot of just helping me clean it up uh, and wash it and just spending time. And my my dad, uh, you know, walked around with her and talked about a bunch of different things. And, you know, it's much more dangerous. The engines, when you open it up, it's open. There's none of the safety mechanics and stuff that we put in today's cars. So I think that standpoint was really interesting for her. Uh, and just a clutch, and there was no uh, lap belts, or there was no, mm-hmm. uh, no uh, shoulder harness. There or was shoulder. lap belts, yeah. so you know we actually had it retrofitted so we could have lap belts. But my daughter was in awe of that because she's, you know, one, it's a bench seat, but not having a shoulder harness and and things that we, you know, that I think our kids will take for granted uh, moving forward. But I think it's a really special time to spend. Uh, and I highly recommend it. Go rebuild something or build anything with, with your kids and they, they get to learn a lot about their history. Well, that idea of of holding tools and using tools to fix real things, I think is therapeutic. It's powerful. It's also becoming more and more rare. We live in a virtual world and the tools now that we use are virtual tools. I, I When I was at LinkedIn, did a team building activity with the engineers and I took my son who at the time was six. He's always out in the garage building things, working with the tools, much to the chagrin of my wife. And he came on this activity. What was remarkable was watching many of the engineers trying to, we had to build a Rube Goldberg machine where you had to start at one end of the room and end at the other and do lots of contraptions in the middle. Yes. I was surprised about how many of the engineers had not actually used things like drills and saws to do things. But the other funny thing is you have this little six-year-old who's standing there watching the plan and he's like, no, nah, that's not going to work. <laughs> but let me show you how to do it. I love but it. But kids get confidence when they have tools and they see that they can build things and fix problems. I agree. I mean, we built dog houses and rabbit hutches and uh, with my dad, he just brought us out and let us work with it. Yeah. So you, uh, before entering college, spent some time as a nanny as well, which also had an interesting correlation with your future profession. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was set to go to college and then had an opportunity to go to Belgium uh, to Waterloo for a fam- you know, family of two kids. And, you know, I decided to delay college for a year, which was the best thing that I could have done. You know, we were in the French speaking part, but in, in Belgium, they speak Flemish and French. 
yeah, just a lot of one. It made me realize I should delay having kids for a little bit. It was good. Uh, I would say good birth control from that standpoint that I want kids, but at the right time and I wanted to build a career. You know, I learned a lot from the family. We traveled to all these different countries. So I got exposed to a lot of different cultures and languages that I, I'd never been to Europe. So that was great. I learned a little bit about cooking and different things. The, the father had gone back to the States and brought back some chocolate chips and was really excited to have us make chocolate chip cookies. And so I went to the grocery store and bought what I thought was the right ingredients. And unfortunately, in my translation of Flemish and French and everything else, I bought bread flour and not baking flour, which is significantly different. And the outcome wasn't that great. And so the, the, the cookies turned out terrible. Everyone was disappointed. The father came home and tried it. He was kind of mad because we'd wasted, you know, these great ingredients, you know, the chips. And, and I just remember him saying, garbage in, garbage out. You need to like you need to know what you're 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 putting into something, and you need to be thoughtful. And so I just that certainly stuck with me, uh, and just the nuances and languages, and um, built you know another example of just building things. Yeah, well, certainly some direct feedback. What's interesting is today this idea of radical candor is very much in vogue. I found that those that that I work with that have grown up in a home environment where they've gotten the direct feedback and alert and learn to disassociate their self-esteem from the feedback do a lot better. And while it's hard, I think when you're younger to get that kind of feedback, I think it sets you up for a lot of success later in life. Yeah, you're right. You went on to college after that. I, I had to stop and your dad had an interesting philosophy about college and, and helping you pay your way through college. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I remember I, I loved the arts and I, I thought I was going to go into um, the fine arts. And, and he was very adamant that, one, we had to go to college, but we had to go into the sciences. He said, you can do anything you want in college as long as it's in the sciences. And uh, so, you know, that stuck with me after I came back from being an au pair. I uh, ended up going to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo as a computer science and MIS uh, grad and their actually philosophy is learned by doing. So there are very much a lot of hands-on building. So, you know, one, thank goodness he directed me that way. And and back in, you know, 94, 95, that was a lot, you know, the inter- HTML was big. And so if you're in computer science, you were learning, I mean, you're learning many other things, but coding a website was what extended into the art world for me is how do you design something, make it look great. So the timing couldn't have been better because, of course, when I graduated, everyone was hiring MIS and computer science. So that was great. But, you know, his philosophy, he didn't pay for our college. Uh, even in, in high school, he felt that, you know, one, we could go get financial aid. We needed to. He wasn't going to support that. But he did pay for our grades. And it started in high school. Uh, you know, an A was $10, a B was 5 C was 0 and, and a D you had to pay back, an F, let's not talk about that. But uh, And if you got straight A's, you doubled the money. And so, of course, there was a huge incentive when you're sitting on a B plus to just make that extra push to get the A minus. And that when we went to college, he he did give us $100 an A, $50 a B, nothing for a C. And then, you know, we owed on the D uh, and then double when you when you got straight A's. And I will tell you, I pushed extra hard because that paid for the books. You know, it was enough to cover your quarterly books and um, maybe even a little bit extra. And so I just, I think it's a good, I don't know, it was it was a good incentive structure for me. I was certainly motivated by that. And I think it served me well when I graduated. 
So this is your first introduction to comp plans as well. That's right. That's right. We're very motivated by how we're comped, aren't we? How to incentivize <laughs> folks based on the comp structure. Um, so, so you start off in CS, and you definitely embrace this role. At Cisco, you were a programmer. Yes, I was an IT engineer in manufacturing IT, and I was uh, programming for master schedulers. So how did you how did you figure that out? How did you understand the audience and 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 who you were building for? Yeah, so it was interesting as as I was learning about the audience and certainly learning to be a developer, I spent a little bit of time with master schedulers and I learned that most of them if not all of them had to be APIC certified, which is certification in in manufacturing best practices. And so I decided to go get certified and I took the coursework, um studied became certified. And I, I really think I carried that with me throughout my career, just thinking about uh, the flow, uh, bottlenecks, in and out, all of that. And I, and I, you know, manufacturing sort of has been tied throughout my career. Even, you know, my dad was in manufacturing, certainly, and would bring us out on the floor and showed us, you know, soldering parts on, then certainly in, in college and then supporting manufacturing. And I think it, it extends into my career from a problem solving. One of the things you want from your employees is someone who can look at a situation and solve problems, bottlenecks, make it more efficient, you know, what are you doing to make something more efficient, control costs, quality matters a ton in manufacturing. So all of that, uh, I think, was a good foundation. All right. For those that are taking notes, APIC stands for American Production and Inventory Control Society. It sounds like a, a remarkable group. I know people are going to be banging down the doors to sign up for that one after they hear the podcast. There's something, though, about this idea of mechanizing systems. I was talking to Ariel Kelman over at Oracle yesterday. He spent some time at Amazon and he talked about Jeff Bezos' philosophy of mechanisms. And it was very much based on the assembly line mentality where if you could build the mechanism into the system, you would be able to get a repeatable and a scalable process. So in a really interesting way, that background that you had set you up nicely for the future profession you'd have in marketing. Yeah, it really did. I mean, demand gen is that. How do you create a predictable, scalable system to build pipeline? And it mm -hmm. starts with, you know, driving awareness, bringing people into the funnel, converting them and converting them as fast and efficiently as possible uh, to buy your product and then to keep them happy and have them as advocates. But part of making a streamlined flow is you've got to understand the flow. You've got to map out how leads come into your system, how they get assigned to a, a SDR or someone who qualifies them, how they then get assigned to a rep. What's the information they need to make a decision? At what point in time do they need it? Uh, and there's a lot of um, inefficiencies I found whenever entering a company, if you look at the Salesforce instance and setup and the handoff between the marketing automation platform and the CRM, there's a lot you can always tune up. And, and it's living and breathing because a big part of it yeah. is people. And so same with manufacturing. If there's people on the floor, you not only have to have the machine and the software and the system working, you have to have the people trained and working and, and well and understanding their part in the process. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. 
You've got some great posts on LinkedIn. I would encourage people to check them out where you lay out philosophies on various subjects. We'll talk in a minute about your framework for working with sales. Watching you, though, present, I can see that manufacturing mindset come through. You're very crisp and deliberate about the different stages and steps, and and you walk people through methodically what you're thinking is. makes it incredibly easy to follow. Well, let's talk a little bit about, as you started to get into your career, some of the influential folks that you ran into and and how they helped shape you. Who are the people that really kind of stand out in your mind? Yeah, someone who I I think I learned uh, other good foundational um, kind of marketing foundation uh, was uh, my first marketing job after business school. So after Yale School of Management, I joined Trigo and they had just been acquired by IBM. And Dan Drucker was the CMO. And he really taught me the importance of building a partnership with sales and that they were my internal customers. So I was in product marketing and my job was to understand what they need to do to go sell. And I I really did. I followed him over to uh, Postini and I took that knowledge, you know, I took that with me. And I think for marketers, that is just, it's so key in your success in a B2B world when you support sales. Uh, and I think it's the key to the success for a company. You need marketing and sales to be aligned. I think another very influential person is also John McMahon. He was on our board at MongoDB. He is an amazing master at sales and go-to-market. And just a lot of just knowledge and, and leadership came from him. And he was, a, I think, a good mentor also to our CRO, Carlos Delatore, and believer in radical candor, someone else who's been, you know, just a good influence for me as well. You know, John has an interesting background. He goes into that on the show, but he, he also was trained as an engineer initially. And although he didn't end up obviously going that direction, a lot of what he did in his later career was influenced by the engineering mentality. I hear a lot of similarities between the way you describe the role of the CMO and the way he describes the role of the CRO. Obviously, inventor of medic, but very methodical and structured and and objective in terms of how he measures progress and, and success. I love the way you think about partnerships, though, between sales and marketing. I agree. If you're in B2B sales or, or a B2B company, the head of sales and the head of marketing need to be in lockstep. That's something that a lot of people struggle with. And you've you've been able to build great partnerships. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about your relationship with Carlos De La Torre, another friend of the show, worked with him at a couple of different companies. Tell us a little bit about that relationship that the two of you have built. Yeah, you know, I he was at MongoDB about six months before I joined, and, and we worked together for uh, three and a half years there. And then about a year after I came to Trip Actions, he's joined as our CRO. I've learned a ton from him. He definitely is great at having tough conversations, critical, I would say critical conversations. There's a book out there on that, Radical Candor. And um, his directness and ability and and really coming from a place of trust and 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 I just felt like we could solve about any problem that came our way. And he was an advocate for me for budget when I went to the CFO because I could show what kind of money was coming in and how that the ROI on that was turning into pipeline and the results that we were driving for sales. And so he was a good partner when it came to budgeting, when when it came to, you know, looking at next year's target numbers and how we needed to back into that as far as our funnel. And so we partnered very closely on the models that we used around building the pipeline and what budget it would take to do that. And so definitely a, a strong partner, you know, a good marriage there. Yeah. 
So reading between the lines, it sounds like he's provided some direct feedback to you, probably vice versa as well. Is that safe to say? Yes. Yes. You build trust over time by going through conflict and and how you approach conflict and work through that. And so, yeah, I feel like I've got a really strong partner in any environment. I mean, even here, we hit COVID last year. He'd been he'd been on board for I don't know what two months, and and we 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 hit COVID, and and it was great to have him to work through that. And now we're you know we're coming out of this year, and um, we've got you know really good things ahead of us for the company and the business. How do you strike that balance between providing someone with direct feedback that that can be taken as harsh at times and making sure that that person trusts you and knows that it's coming from the right place? Yeah, I mean, I think how you deliver, where you deliver matters. Having a, a private, not public conversation, coming from a place of trust, making them feel secure in the delivery, right? Like secure them as as what the, you're doing amazing work. We've got all this going on over here. We need to go fix this. I'm not sure yeah. you realize. I think it's in a blind spot for you. Let's, yeah. let's talk about what we can do. What do you need for me to help you address that? Yeah. Um, can I help get talent? Can I help bring someone in? Do you, you know, can I help with my network? Uh, just some, you know, something in that area. But I think when you're both focused on the same objectives and you, you know, in you support each other in an open environment, you know, trust is built over time and you have to be consistent with it. And you're not attacking each other in a weird way or throwing each other off where you didn't see that coming. Like that was kind of out of the blue. You know, you'll see situations where people will will do something out of the blue that I think breaks down their relationship. So it's being, yeah. you know, I think you one, you're building together. You know, I kind of have the model of the three things you need. One, you have to build build the model together, agree on the targets, agree on your ICP, your ideal customer profile, um, how you're going to score when it comes in, what's the ideal customer, how you're going to hand that off. The second thing is transparency and results. You know, if, if you're not honest about what's working, what's not working, you're, you, you, you know, in a marriage, you don't believe each other as soon as you're not truthful. So you've got to show them the good and the bad. Uh, and then habitual communication. You've got to be constantly communicating on what you need, what you're seeing, what the team needs, what's working and what's not working. Uh, so those three things together, I think, build a relationship. I like that idea of building together. That sounds like a theme that's coming out in your life. Clearly, place where you've been able to find trust with the people you're building with. But you're right. If you're both invested and and leaning in, it's a partnership as opposed to one person critiquing another. Um, the other things that stood out in what you said, one is separating the problem from the person so that they understand you have their best interest in, at heart and we got problems to solve and we'll always, we always will. The other thing is genuine willingness to help. I hear so many times people say, can I help? What can I do? You mentioned, hey, Carlos actually went to bat with me and helped me get budget. That's a great example of someone that goes to bat and tries to help you out. Yes. Yeah, I agree. So that framework that you lay out, and this is one of the areas where I would encourage folks to to hit LinkedIn. I know you've got a posting on how to build a strong relationship, but building together transparency and results and habitual communication, three hallmarks of a great relationship. There was one other facet of your formula for success that I wanted to probe on, which is identify and deploy technology that accelerates the funnel. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with technology over time? Yeah, I, I think, you know, having the 
undergrad in MIS and computer science, I was very comfortable with technology and then pivoting into marketing for tech companies and understanding that value prop and what it can bring. And after I moved from product marketing, I moved into demand gen. I was a couple of years of product marketing and quickly moved over to demand gen because it was very clear that it was well suited for building, you know, my skill set for building pipeline, understanding what the sales team needed, and now apply technology to that to um, even supercharge it. And and you know, 15 years ago when I first entered into demand gen, there was a few Martech out there. There was Eloqua, there was uh, certainly Salesforce, and some of these other technologies. And maybe we had five five different technologies then. And um, so I spent a lot of time understanding them. How was I going to figure out lead flow, what the sales team needed? A company I was at, Tririga, Stan Thames was COO, and he was very data-oriented and I would say brought a lot of conflict (laughs) and wanted answers of why things weren't working. And I just knew if I was going to debate with him, I needed data. It wasn't enough to have anecdotes. And so that at that point, I learned Salesforce. I just dove in. I took, they had all these online classes. You could learn how to build reports and dashboards and how the leads and the contact database and the account database was set up. And that was also Well, you were APIC certified. So of course you could learn Salesforce. <laughs> of course. I, I live and die by my results, right? I wanted to prove what we were doing was working. And so I, I learned that a lot and took it with me. But then I started to acquire more technology and it started to come about. You know, now we have 5,000 technologies in MarTech. But if I think about companies I was at, I started out with five. Then I went to the next company, ArcSight, and maybe we had 10 or 15 marketing technologies. Then DocuSign, we had 25, you know, Mongo 30 something. Here we have over 40 different technologies for marketing, uh, you know, and that's a lot on our website. Uh, a lot on our funnel management, that's awareness, that's all the social channels we have now, all these things you want to integrate, um, operations, budgets. So there's just so many things now that we can use. And and I think it's an advantage. If you can figure out the technologies that are out there, I always feel like I had an advantage because I was innovating on the newest technology that came out. And I had insights and data that maybe our competitors didn't because I was very comfortable using technology to figure out what was broken, what was working, what wasn't. You know, you have this budget and and they, we say, yeah, you've got a great budget. Half of it's working, but you don't know which half, right? The old saying. Well, now I feel we get a lot closer to what's working because we have a lot more information around attribution, what deals were touched by certain content or activities. And um, I, I, you know, I continue to believe strongly that technology gives us advantage and innovation and companies and those that embrace it will survive and thrive and those that don't will die out. And that, you know, everything around disruption is, is, is usually tied to some form of improvement technology that's out there. I am really intrigued by the comment, use technology to create a competitive advantage. And I think there's so much truth in that. At the same time, there's this phenomenon which I refer to as techno sprawl, <laughs> yes. where you just keep bringing in the technology and bringing in the technology. And in certain sense, instances, too much technology can become a distraction or even a, a a disadvantage. How do you separate technology as an advantage, or how do you avoid the techno sprawl that could otherwise occur? 
Yeah. So I think a couple of ways. Uh, one, you need to be able to digest it. So you have to have the team that can implement it and you have to have it, you know, you wouldn't want to buy 10 technologies and only have time to implement one and, and, and less time to even understand the results of it. And some of this is built over time. You start to use technology, you see the advantage. The next time it's much easier to implement and you, you are already using it and you're learning the new technology. The other thing is I won't bring any technology in that I don't have an owner or champion for. And so I've got to have a champion and someone who reports results on it. And I will check back in monthly and quarterly to understand the results. And we evaluate our technology, certainly on renewal, but every year we're looking at the tech stack and I'm dropping those out that I don't see the return on and I'm adding new ones so we can um, innovate with it. And so, you know, I have a uh, a pretty good team that's constantly looking at our stack and up-leveling it, learning from it. And, you know, I think CFOs do a good job in in tightening the budget where you 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 don't get to just keep everything, you know? So I think if you have good practices where you, you have to show the ROI, you've got an owner and champion and you're looking at re- results regularly, then you're in good shape. Let's transition and talk a little bit about your time at MongoDB. Great company, rocket ship of a ride you became the CMO there. I'd love to hear the story behind how you got that role. Yeah. So um, I, you know, prior to MongoDB, I was at DocuSign for three and a half years as their VP of demand gen. Um, but my long-term, you know, my goal was to be a CMO and I was working towards that and and learning more and more about the, the different functions of marketing. Uh, and I was uh, getting ready to have my third child and I had a lot of inbound uh, around CMO jobs, but I wasn't, I didn't really want to leave DocuSign. DocuSign was a fun, amazing company, good product. I love the management team and what I was doing. Um, and, and the day I delivered, our CMO resigned. And I wanted that job. And I remember sitting in the hospital because I had C-section. So for four days waiting, and I just started firing emails and setting up meetings. I wanted to meet with the CEO and the COO. And I, I threw my hat in the ring and I was like, I want to be the CMO of uh, DocuSign. And I and I probably surprised him a little bit. Uh, and I spent the next 12 weeks of maternity leave. I, I drove in two days a week and, and kind of pitched and fought for the CMO job. And uh, I learned a lot in the process because I needed to balance out. I was very demand gen heavy field marketing web and systems. I had some product marketing, but really no brand or comms you know, I'd always had someone at the company that had that experience. And um, so I, I read a bunch of brand books by Acre. I networked with a bunch of CMOs I knew to try and figure out kind of what, what did I need to do to position? You know, ultimately, I didn't get the job. I think I, out of, finally at the end, I was ranked third out of the the candidates. Um, but I, lo- I learned a lot along the way, what I was capable of, what I was passionate for. And it at the same time, um, the CEO of MongoDB was, you know, for a few months had been trying to get me to look at the CMO job at MongoDB. And I had um, a couple times said no, actually, Dave jokes about it, that I, I said no to many, you know, twice. Um, and I kept telling him all the reasons why it didn't make sense. And he would come back and say, well, actually, that's, I agree with you. And these, this is what we would do. And this is why it would uh, make sense. And finally, I, I remember just saying to him, like, my own company didn't pick me for the CMO. They know me better than anyone. Like, why, why, why do you think I should be the CMO? And, and he just said, that's why I want you. You're hungrier than anyone else that could come in here and you have something to prove that they should have selected you. And why I was sort of, you know, annoyed, it was so true. Uh, and it also made me realize that if he had this much faith in me, and he believed I was the right person, 
you know, what kind of amazing support would I have from a leader? And so over that sort of, I would say, six-month courtship, um, I decided to leave DocuSign and go be the CMO. Uh, and the other thing he did was, I, you know, having a, a, a baby, I knew, and I lived in California, and while it was dual headquartered at the time, Palo Alto, New York, I knew I'd be going back and forth a lot. And so he structured it uh, with a travel stipend so I could bring uh, a caretaker and my youngest, uh, Audrey, uh, back and forth when I needed to. And so just, you know, made it possible. And certainly I was scared the first couple months if I could do it. Um, but as I got into it and started to build the team out and see what we needed, um, you know, I learned a lot and grew into the role and, and um, you know, felt confident from, you know, that experience. That's such an inspiring story. So many times on the outside, I think you look at these successful executives and just assume that Doors were opened in front of them. It's almost like the elevator. You walk up and the doors open and you walk in and you just go up to the top floor. The fact, though, that you committed yourself to that fight and maybe it didn't end up the way you wanted it to, but you learned from that and parlayed that into something greater. That's actually a story I've heard again and again. Uh, Ryan Carlson over at Okta, uh, Chris Kohler over at Box. Robin Matlock at VMware, they all talk about similar experiences where they really had to fight for it. They had to go after it. It builds character. It's, it, it builds character. And, uh, and, and again, I can't help but think of the story, my kids pick up poop. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep, keep working. Keep working. Keep working. Don't working. be afraid to get your hands dirty. So Mongo is a great company. Uh, you're at you're at a phenomenal company now with Trip Actions. How do you pick good companies? What's your criteria? I learned a lot when I was just you know when I went to Mongo to be. I did spend some time with the board, and um, I learned a lot about addressable market. And one thing I think in picking companies is large addressable markets that have legacy players that haven't been disrupted in a while are the perfect place to go after. So one is a disruptable market. So MongoDB was taking on Oracle. They'd been in there 40 plus years. Uh, Trip Actions were taking, you know, the last really innovator came out in 2000. That was Agencia. And you've got Concur and Amex. They've been around forever. You know, these legacy pre-iPhone companies need to be disrupted because the way we look at the world through our phones and consumerization and what we expect is so different. And if you were to build technology today, it's so different. And so I think pick some a market that hasn't been disrupted since the iPhone. So large addressable market ready for disruption. You know, so that's one. Two, a, an amazing product that users love. So one thing that kept coming up with MongoDB is all the users loved it. It had high NPS. Developers loved it. Same thing, trip actions. We have a high NPS in the 50s. We've got customer sat is really high, over 93%. Uh, you know, that product market fit matters. So you you take a large market and you've got product market fit. Those are, you know, two very important things. And then the team, right? It's who you bring on the team uh, and your investors. And I, you know, I always say investors know way more about companies and the economics and the numbers that if these tier one VCs are putting their money in this company, they've done their homework. And so I look at who's on who's on the board. Obviously here, A16Z with Ben Horowitz doesn't get better than that. Um, Lightspeed, um, Z Ventures, and then the team. 
You want a team that's hungry, that's got good work ethic and grit, um, and it's just a little bit crazy, right? They're they're taking on a massive market with large incumbents, but they see something different. And so when I met with Ariel and Elon and the team, I could just see their vision for this space and what they were doing. Uh, and I, I believe they had what it would take. And as they built the team out that I could add value is probably the last thing. Can I add value to the company I'm going to? Uh, and I and will I have fun doing that? And so uh, Trip Actions had all of that before that. MongoDB had all of that as well. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the point about pre-iPhone companies and how different they are. When I came to People.ai, we actually used Trip Actions. I remember the first time I had to book a trip. I hadn't interacted with the application before. I literally had this dread. I was putting it off because I knew how painful it was to book a trip. Eventually, I, I I mustered the nerve. I got into the app, and literally in in sixty seconds, I booked everything. It yes, blew fast. me away. Yeah, yeah. It we we talk away. about that. You know, typically someone might take an hour on these legacy platforms. We have it below six minutes. Uh, and and using machine learning and AI, we really refine that over time. So you can just go in. Your it's the obvious choices you would want and book. Um, based on your behavior and your loyalty programs and all of that. And then uh, just the service alone, having someone right immediately to chat or on an app because we're a booking tool and a TMC together and the legacy yeah. providers um, don't provide that level of service or experience. Yep. So at Mongo, the name of the game was Scale. That company was, as I said, on a rocket ship and you had to build a marketing organization that kept pace what is the framework that you use to build a marketing organization fast? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. When I when I go in, I certainly assess the team that's there and I ask a lot of questions outside the team and what people think marketing needs to do. I think that's also informative. Um, but there's really three things I'm looking to do. And what I see when you're looking at a, a, a startup that's trying to scale, one, you need the right people. Two, you need the right technology. And three, you need to put the right process in place. And what's interesting about marketing, it's very not similar to sales in that you're not hiring the same profile over and over again for an enterprise rep, a mid-market rep, a commercial rep. You are hiring very different skill sets, and you need to bring them together on the team. You've got your product marketers, very cerebral, analytical, MBAs. You've got your demand gen um, that are, you know, pumping out a lot of programs, webinars, content, email marketing. You've got your web team and systems. You've got your creatives who are doing video work and making things look great. And, and you have your events field marketing team. You have your European team for localization. These are all very different people with very different backgrounds. And you need to bring them together to do launches and to run something. Nothing goes out of the door from a company that hasn't been touched by each of these teams. And so you're hiring very unique skill set. Uh, and so I go in and I make sure I have the leaders for those different pillars in and the teams that they need so we can go to market and, and compete in the market. And so even here at Trip Actions, when I joined, we had about 10 uh, and we built up to 60 in the first year. I needed to bring in the leaders and the, and the team at the same time. We hired about 20 people in marketing in six weeks. And um, it was very fast paced. But if you know exactly what you're looking for and what, what you need, go get those people. Then start bringing in the technology you need because you need data and insight. A lot of times startups don't know where the problems are on spend, on the website, on the handoff to sales. And there are technologies there that will help with that, that will help people find your website, 
Um, and so getting that in place and then process, you know, as you scale, you want to be efficient and process is not there to slow things down. It's there to make you more efficient, to make a launch, you know, go faster, to make the lead flow and handoff faster. Um, and, and so those three things uh, I look at and then put in place. You said that you hired 20 people in six weeks. Yes. How do you hire that many people that fast and keep the quality high? Yeah, you know, I I think I had a small advantage in that one, when I was MongoDB, I was flying back and forth to New York and my network was in California. So I had to really build a team and network in New York. Um, So I actually think it was a lot easier to hire in California than to hire a team that needed to either fly back and forth to New York or be in New York. So I came back to, I think, having a track record at successful companies and going to a rocket ship ship company, right? So you have a company that's doing well. We had grown 7X. The next year we grew 5X after I was here. So we were growing fast. Travel is fun. It's not infrastructure, right? It's like DocuSign. There's a end, you know, that's a very consumer type product, even though it's B2B. Um, you you understand the product, you use the product. Travel is fun. So here you have a rocket ship and a fun space. You've got um, leaders that have a proven track record with successful companies. And then I had a good network. I'd been in the Bay Area and had a lot of, you know, I hired a dozen people from companies I'd worked at in the last decade. Um, So, you know, they know you, you reach out to them and, you know, you're able to move fast. One of the things that's important to understand when companies hire C-level executives, they're also hiring their network. Yes, And so it's so important that over the course of your career, you're thinking about that network and just how you're staying in touch and cultivating those relationships. I had a great conversation with Brian McCarthy, who's the CRO over at ThoughtSpot. Similar story where he had to come in and literally in a few months build out a massive team. He was able to do that because he had a network of people whom he trusted who trusted him. And once they hit the ground, they already knew how to work together because they'd done it in the past. Yes, it's so true. And I just think it's out of necessity. I had 24 open headcount. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I didn't even hit my open headcount. It's a great incentive. So you eventually made the move to Trip Actions. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to make that move. You know, very similar. Uh, you know, I felt the pain as an end user flying back and forth to New York. Massive market. It's a one point five tri- pre-COVID one point five trillion dollar business travel online market. And even if we're at fifty percent by spring, that's an eight hundred billion dollar market. So just a large market. Um, you know, good investors. I mentioned that before. Solid team. I really believed in Ariel, our our co-founder and CEO's vision. Uh, and two years ago, he also talked about it wasn't just business travel. It was going to be expense management payments, this whole end-to-end all the way to the ERP system and why it made, you know, the second largest spend at companies is T&E. And so, and the harder part to solve for is travel because scaling globally, points of sale, all the operations around that and the inventory that you need to bring in, but that you could also move into the expense side of it. So we had this vision, which was only an idea two years ago. We launched Liquid, the expense management payments 
um, program in, in February. So it's just about a year old. We have 4,000 customers on our travel platform. We have over 150 on our liquid platform uh, as we're selling into the base and, and net new customers. And it's amazing. You know, you, you find the right leaders. And he was not from the travel industry, which is actually why a lot of the investors loved that he came in and just looked at it from a very different perspective and solved it with technology uh, and really disrupted the space. So I was excited by that opportunity. And it didn't hurt that it was near home. That's a, that's a perk as well. Yes. Well, so COVID comes along. It definitely takes a bite out of the travel industry. How did you guys respond? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, I think, four things we really did. One, we had to focus on our customers very quickly. What did they need? They needed to get travelers home. There was a duty of care aspect. They had all these unused tickets they needed to manage. So, you know, focused on our customers. Two, product market fit. We had great product market fit. We still do, but we need to build and innovate. Our engineers were busy figuring out in this new world, what do they need? They need a lot of data. We hooked into the CDC to understand virus numbers, reproduction numbers, more on the unused tickets, giving them a lot more visibility and control. Um, so t- the second thing was focusing on our product market fit. Third, controlling cost. Um, you know, we're startup. Thankfully for that, we had enough cash in the bank, but your, you know, revenue drops immediately on a usage based model and nobody's traveling. So we need to get cash burned down pretty quickly and become very efficient and focused on what we were working on, which was building and innovating on the product. And then the fourth thing is employees. You know, we did go through a layoff uh, in March when that hit. Obviously, that made sense. We were in business travel. And so making sure we took care of the employees that were here, um, making sure we had them focused and we're building. So those are kind of the four things uh, we did as a company. As a marketer, I had to focus very quickly on messaging. Um, we had to pivot. We, we went from the best experience in business travel. Uh, if you think about it, nobody was having a good time in business travel. They were all trying to get home um, from this virus to, to a much more serious tone of traveler safety and cost control because CFOs are thinking about those things. You know, one, I need to have our travelers safe. I've got duty of care and I need to bring costs uh, under control and in line. I need better visibility on this. So, um, you know, focusing on that messaging that needed to change. And then as a marketer, you got to enable the field. What are they selling? How do they go to market? We, we were evolving the product and then we had launched liquid. So focused a lot on sales enablement and then building pipeline because we still wanted to bring, obviously we're, we're going for market share and we went up market this past year. We added a lot more enterprise clients. Uh, and so that's a different selling motion than mid-market and commercial. And so having the right um, content that a sales team needs bringing on and enabling and getting them productive and targeting these larger customers. Uh, and we we did see a lot of success in enterprise. Customers like AECOM, Netflix uh, all joined us this year. Um, and a lot, you know, not just tech. We saw healthcare, certainly retail, Crate and Barrel, Wayfair, um, these customers coming on board that are still traveling. They're seeing their stores. Um, if you're, you know, manufacturing still traveling. So uh, I think it actually, um, we diversified in our industries. Um, this year and made sure that our product was um, suited across all industries. You know, I can't think of a a bigger challenge for a a travel-oriented company than COVID. And yet you were able to pivot as a company and continue to provide value and continue to be a viable entity. Regardless of the company that you're at, challenges are always going to emerge. Your point, though, about hitching your wagon to a great leadership team is so important because 
when those speed bumps occur, sometimes when those brick walls emerge, the companies that have the great leadership teams, they don't throw their cards in, they pivot. And they're smart enough to figure out where are the opportunities and agile enough to be able to pursue those. Yeah, that's very true. And uh, I think we're fortunate to be the size that we are because we're not encumbered by legacy infrastructure. We have a strong engineering team. We're tech at the core, so we're able to build uh, and um, we don't have the big office spaces all, you know, we have eight offices, but not the same footprint as some of these larger players like an Amex, GBT, or Concur. And so we could pivot, we could focus the team uh, and survive really the, the the downturn that hit this last year. I wanted to zero in for a minute on a campaign I thought was very touching. It was the Pass the Plane campaign. Can you talk a little bit about that campaign, where it came from and what it was all about? Yeah, you know, it's it's it, it it's interesting and it kind of ties back to the beginning of our discussion with my dad. A lot of us were at home trying to stay connected uh, and and isolating. And I have as I mentioned three kids and um we wanted to f- what could we do as a company? You know, and we were sitting down as a marketing team, how could we connect? We're we're in flights and airplanes and we started to talk about building paper airplanes. And throwing them, and could we virtually throw them? And um, I remember on a Sunday, I built an airplane, and I I took my phone, I recorded throwing it, and I had my kids, and they got involved and started throwing their airplanes. And I I text my dad, and I was like, hey, he made the best airplanes. I mean, he flies Cessnas, he loves airplanes. I said, build an airplane and throw it. We're kind of we're kicking off this idea of virtually connecting. And and he was up by himself. I remember he propped his phone up kind of funny and he was wearing slippers with, you know, holes in them on on the video. And he threw the plane and I captured that. And then he he sent it to my nephew. And my nephew did it down in Albuquerque uh, and sent a plane. And and we started kicking it off around the office and we sent it to employees around the world. And and we thought, you know, why don't we do this with partners and customers and create a microsite and just start making videos? And it really took off. We had over 10 million people and viewers that it touched. And um, we had people in Germany, we had um, people in the Philippines, people we didn't know, we had airline um, flight attendants get involved. Uh, and so it was just, it was fun to see the videos. We we created a Twitter thing, an Instagram, a Facebook following, and I just enjoyed going and seeing the videos. Um, and yeah, it felt good. You know, it was such a depressing time, yet it was a way to connect and and um, get people involved, and we we had some videos made across the company, and different teams got involved, and um, yeah, I thought it was a an amazing way, and it was less about us, but more about connecting as humans. We do have a, a belief in you know human to human connection, you know matters a lot. That's why we fundamentally believe everyone will get back out on the road and you don't sell million dollar deals over the phone uh, and hold relationships. And so I think it was it was a great you know way for us as a company to express ourselves. What I love about that campaign is it ties together so many aspects of your life. Your dad, I think of the au pair that went off after high school and and got the travel bug as she traveled around Europe obviously your efforts as a CMO and all of the people that you're you're servicing. But ultimately, it was a very human way to touch a lot of people and bring a lot of people together. Well, the hour has flown by. We're out of time. I'll leave with one final question. As you look back over the arc of your career and your life, what would you say is the one thing that's made the biggest difference? 
Uh, I think the one thing that's made the biggest difference is a desire to just build and do things and learn and problem solve and, you know, many things. I, I think just your, I do think your childhood frames a lot of things and gives you a good work ethic and outlook. And I think, you know, having a optimistic view and being willing to work really hard for it is the one thing that's made a difference. Well, Megan, thank you so much for the stories that you shared and also for the great words of wisdom. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.